0: And kind of, yeah!
1: Yeah, what a what a Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back. It is Wednesday, August 17th at around 7.26 p.m. And boy, a whole lot has happened in the last nine or so days. Uh, it's been a real sort of Wrestlemania of a week including a literal fight that we will talk about in, uh, in just a moment. But I am Nathan Strauss, and I am joined by a man uh, who did not complete a transfer to uh, the Saudi Arabian League today. It is Caleb Rhodes.
2: No, I have I, I take the kind of Tiger Woods approach with all these things. They can throw all the money at me they want to, which, to be clear, they haven't, and I will, I will turn it down.
1: That's good to know. Uh, words to live, pun intended, bye. And uh, we're also joined by a man who did not uh, get beaten up by Danish center back Joachim Anderson. It is Nick Govinden.
0: No, but gentlemen, I am feeling in a very head mood, so I apologize if uh, I I get a little aggressive during the recording of this podcast.
1: Yeah, well, like last week you were sad, this week is angry. We're kind of, I guess, going through the five stages of 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 grief for you. Uh, but I mean, all is, all hope is not yet lost. But uh, speaking of fights and headbutts and everything else, uh, it seems like the only fitting place for us to start when discussing this past weekend uh, worth of action is Stamford Bridge, where Chelsea and Spurs played to a 2-2 draw, where somehow uh, the main focus of the game was actually on the touchline, where Antonio Conte and Thomas Tuchel not once but twice Squared up as if to brawl, and uh, you know, that motivation was very much uh, due to you know, a combination of game events, uh, poor officiating, and uh, tempers boiling over. But it does seem like there's something special about uh, London derbies that take place at Stamford Bridge, like people get ready to fight.
0: I feel like Stefan from SNL, this game had a bit of everything, and I think. <laughs> <laughs> on the on the thirtieth anniversary of the Premier League, yes, the Premier League was founded in nineteen ninety two. On this weekend or last weekend, rather, and on its thirtieth anniversary, we had a match of football that was pure, unadulterated Barclays. Right, like it, this had everything. It had br- brilliant goals. It had a little bit of the chippy energy. It had a manager bust up on the touchline, a la you know Wenger and Mourinho we've seen go to toe on this touchline you know, we've seen many managers have a bust up on the on the the hallowed grounds of Stamford Bridge on Fulham Broadway and this was no different I thought this was a really f- intriguing game tactically on the pitch Conte and Tuchel really were trying to outmaneuver each other with their formations we saw Spurs implement a back four with Richarlison to try and get back into the game and they did and you have you know the refereeing controversies the foul situations um Christian Romero blatantly pulling Mark Cucurella's hair in the build-up to Spurs's 96th minute equalizer via Harry Kane and so yeah this game had a, just a bit of everything in my opinion and it was a perfect cap off to the 30th anniversary weekend I really you know we say I think journalists are supposed to say um You know, we do not condone the scenes from this match. But yeah, I'm not a journalist. I loved it. I think it's great. I think it's pure, unadulterated entertainment. Uh, And it was a 2-2 draw that I think flattered Tottenham, definitely flattered Tottenham. And I think, Caleb, you and I were talking about how we felt a bit deceived once again by, you know, our preseason predictions and what Tottenham can bring to the table. But I think definitely a valuable point for them. But yeah, I mean, this was such an electric way to begin know week two of the Premier league or i guess that day of Premier league action and i don't know i thought it was a blast i had a really great time perfect way yeah. to kick off the anniversary
2: yeah so this was the you know the first i would say big game of the season i think it was a test of both teams you know top four credentials for different reasons chelsea obviously still trying to figure themselves out i mean both their goals in the game came from Defenders who played like offensive players. Can we just stop for a moment to talk about Koulibaly's volley?
1: <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was pretty surprising. So as is tradition, uh, you know, all three of us are watching a game at the same time, but from different places. And both of your streams were once again, somehow like 25 seconds ahead of mine. So you both were like, oh my God, wow, like what a hit. And then... I got to see it you know knowing that it was coming and even i was still surprised because you know you don't often see a player like koulibaly who you know scores like two to three goals per season pretty much all with his head uh it's pretty rare that you see him or any defender any center back really lash a volley a standing one-legged volley uh from you know close to the outer edges of the box what a hit indeed
2: yeah so koulibaly who i think showed his quality in many dimensions in this game was excellent um Tottenham were definitely you know the second best team for for much of this game and I think Nick when we were talking about feeling deceived um was when after Tottenham pegged one back in somewhat controversial fashion after a you know not called foul on Kai Havertz by Benton Coeur, Um and then Reese James equalized we were like okay they're taking control But it really was that switch to kind of a 4-4-2 that added new life into this game that really sort of, you know, burst um, in the last, you know, 25 minutes. And then after uh, Romero tried to rip off what he thought was, I guess, a very curly toupee on Cucurella's head, um, Harry Kane scoring from the ensuing corner, to make it 2-2... And I think it showed a certain, you know, pluckiness in in Spurs that I don't think I normally associate with them. And in a weird way, leaves me with more questions for Chelsea than for Tottenham. I don't know if you guys agree with that. And then maybe, you know, after we discuss that, we can get into the real action, which would happen in like the 98th minute um, with what will probably from now on be known as the handshake the the thumb wrestle. I don't know um, what, what, <laughs> what this little moment will be called.
1: Yeah, I mean, when was the last time a German and an Italian fought like that? Like, uh, yeah, I, it, it's almost a shame that so much of the talk has been about the fight because the game itself was such a good tactical battle, I thought, Nick.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought this was an excellent tactical battle. I thought you saw both coaches who deploy a very similar formation, try and tweak them a little bit just to gain slight tactical advantages. And then obviously, you know, we've already referenced when uh, Conte brings on Richarlison and he allows Ben Davies to bomb forward as a pure left back. And then Tuchel, you know, brings on Azpilicueta and allows Reese James to come out from center back and play right wing back and get further onto the pitch. Obviously it results in the second goal. And also, you know, that beautiful ball from Rhys James into the path of Kai Havertz, which Kai Havertz fluffs. And I think that leads into, you know, what Caleb was mentioning about questions about Chelsea, where I feel like once again, just like the Everton game, we saw their propensity to still be able to craft chances for the likes of, you know, Sterling, Havertz, and Mount. However, I don't think, I think this is a team that's going to finish with under 55 goals again in the Premier League if they can't find a way to convert more of these chances and, you know, without the likes of Timo Werner, who was is, who is back at the bridge to watch the game you know, after re-debuting for Leipzig on the Saturday. So it's going to be interesting to see if they are active in the transfer market to try and sign a player like Yang, who would definitely be able to put those chances away and increase their goal tally. But yeah, I'm not convinced that this is a Chelsea team that's going to be proactive in scoring goals until they can find a solution for that. But definitely, tactically and defensively, they're still the Chelsea team that we have become accustomed to under Tuchel. However, with Conte going out for the foreseeable next couple weeks, that might also, you know, look a little different.
1: Yeah. And I mean, uh, Conte and and Tuchel are both charged by the FA. I would imagine they both will get at least like a one match touchline ban. I do think this game shows that Spurs are, and Conte teams in general, under, Get very predictable very fast. But, you know, I mean, and, and to be fair, like he has used more or less the same formation and the same methods for the better part of, you know, a decade now, at least. Um, but I do think that this showed a willingness to go for it, which I didn't really expect. And I mean, when they brought on Rosarlison for Sessignon, it almost looked like a 4 2 4 at times. So uh, it was an interesting battle and uh you know as an arsenal fan it's one of those weird games where you know there's like two or three games a year that you just truly can't root for a team but a feisty draw is pretty much as good as you're gonna get
0: what game should we move to next well, hold on. We got to talk about the, uh, the touchline fracas as it was, I think. And uh, part of me really thinks, you know, Nathan, you're talking about Conte being a bit predictable tactically somewhat. And I agree to a certain extent that it was nice to see him change things up. I definitely think that there was an air of intentionality to the you know holding on to the hand not looking at Thomas Tuchel you know getting up and Tuchel getting up in his face and Conte being very reactive to that getting his team fired up and we saw you know after the final whistle you know after the everything sort of got everyone got separated and everything you know Eze Basuma who has not been at Tottenham for very long is the first person to like hype up the crowd go to the away fans and you know get them hyped up so i think in in these antics there's a bit of Conte saying, I'm fully bought in to this Tottenham team. I'm going to fight for them. This, these are my guys. Um, I'm an ex-Chelsea manager, but the X in that is capitalized. I think this is him in, in a weird way, you know, signaling that he is, you know, fully bought in to these players and they are now, you know, fully his project and his responsibility. So I, I liked I like that from Conte somewhat. And I think from Tuchel, you know, he." He responded afterwards by saying, you know, this was just people being passionate about football. And I think really at the end of the day, that's all this was. This is just two very passionate managers, you know, getting in each other's faces. And I think they're both gonna be able to move on. Conte obviously putting that joking Instagram post about him potentially, you know, tripping Tuckle if he does that like run down we the need side. More, line, the we need the next more time.
1: managers. We need more managers with like we basically need more shit posting managers. Like, how how rare is it for managers to, like, do something like that? I thought it was hilarious.
2: It was great. But I think that moment, because it was, you know, Tuchel, the one who kind of, like, grips Conte's hand and, like, doesn't let him go. And is seeking for that, you know, recognition from Conte because he's complaining about, like, the lack of eye contact or whatever. Which just seems odd given that a lot of times, you know, these post-game handshakes are rather short they're brief they're brisk um but I think I encapsulated kind of what I'm trying to get at which is like the two different momentums momenta of the clubs where I think Chelsea seem to be trending a bit down or at least it's sort of unclear where they're going while Spurs despite being probably the worst team on the day feel sort of more sportingly ascendant I don't know if I'm reading too much into this but I I felt like Conte was the one who seemed very comfortable kind of brushing this off, and it felt like a little sad or lame to see Tuchel like feeling like he needed to go to these lengths.
1: Well, also, I think, I mean, the the other thing that we haven't talked about yet is Tuchel in the post game conference. It's so obviously you can get charged by the FA for a number of things, but there are rules about like what you can and can't say about the officiating. And I will say that as a neutral, he would have two-footed have, on these guys. Yeah, he, who really didn't have a dog in the fight. Anthony Taylor had one of the worst officiated games that I've ever seen. It was truly Mike Dean. And Mike Dean was on VAR, by the way. But it was truly uh, like Mike Dean-esque to the point where it wasn't just the two major decisions that he didn't uh, make, which was the foul, the clear foul that Bettencourt committed on, uh, on Kai Havertz about a minute and a half before Spurs got their first goal. But I am just baffled as to how a hair pull that was so blatant, like Kukurea has like Samson style hair. It was so clear and obvious. Uh, so I do think that Tuchel deserves, I don't know if credit is the right word, but he deserves uh, at least us noticing his, uh, his chutzpah if you will, at calling out the officiating so directly because I do think he's right. I don't think either of those goals should have, should have counted. And that's one of the things that I think makes this game so interesting is because Spurs celebrated a draw like a win. Chelsea will feel like this is a loss because they really should have had all three points. And in the end, no one is truly all that happy.
0: Except for us. Except for us because it was pretty Except fun for the to watch. spectator, yeah. Yeah, I think on the refereeing thing, it's going to be interesting to see, especially because there's some new refereeing guidelines this season. The Premier League, obviously, the PGMOL has a new chief in Howard Webb. And they lost at...
1: they lost 25% of their games to retirement.
0: Yes. So it's going to be interesting to see how they recover from all of that and move on. But yeah, I agree. I thought this was a horribly officiated game. In many ways, that felt like it was full-on throwback Barclays as well they were just letting the two teams play lads and um but yeah i think the the blatantness of both challenges was on full display for everyone to see and i'm not you know thoroughly convinced that tottenham deserved those two goals but i think if you're antonio conte you take those opportunities after battling for battling from behind for 90 minutes essentially and we've seen tottenham capitulate from those positions so frequently under different managers and so i think it is you know, in a way, like Caleb was talking about, somewhat of an ascendancy from just a mental capacity. Can we shift
1: focus to Saturday's game? I feel like the main focus of Saturday, uh, of the Saturday action, was the, uh, the late game on that day, which was Brentford United. But before we get to that, can we just take a second to talk about Gabriel Jesus? Because I think what he did against Leicester was. Uh, really really good to see at least for me.
2: Yeah, I mean hard to complain about two goals and two assists. I think his first goal especially stopping the ball in the box and kind of just, you know, letting his foot swing back and forward and then scoring a really nice little curler. He he seems settled. I think he looked I think he looked settled in the first game too. He just couldn't quite get a goal, but in this game against, you know, Lester, who are, you know, by no means pushover opponents with basically their full strength starting eleven, um, was, was an impressive performance and he looked like, you know, a leader for the offense. Um so I don't know. I think it, it portends well for Arsenal. I think if the Crystal Palace game was a taste of what this team's potential is, I think this gives us an even, you know, better sense that they're legit. Arsenal are legit. Jesus
0: is legit. Yeah. Christians would have you believe that Jesus yeah. is legit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I agree with you, Caleb. I think in in our preseason pod, we had the discussion about whether or not Gabriel Jesus could come from Manchester City and really be the main man at a club like Arsenal, be that the focal point for an attack, that number that true traditional number nine that you know is the tip of the spear. And this was very much a main man kind of performance. And the thing that kind of surprised me the most was how good he was at holding up the ball and bringing other players into attack. And I think we've seen we've seen glimpses of that really quality transition play at Man City, but at City, you know, you're not really required to hold up the ball all that much. And I think it was interesting to see him act as that, you know, more traditional center forward, which I think Arsenal have been looking for for quite some time, you know, since Yang's decline and eventual departure and Lacazette's just decline and the now departure. So I, it was really refreshing to see Jesus on the pitch. I think he looks totally revitalized following his move from City. He looks like he knows what his position is. He knows what his responsibilities are. And I think he's only going to get better for this Arsenal team with consistent game time. Yeah, and
1: uh, and Martinelli got his second goal in two games as well. I personally appreciated the fact that every time Arsenal conceded they scored again uh, within 90 seconds which was which again portended well Um, but uh, you know this game finished 4-2 to Arsenal the more shocking and probably the most shocking game uh, of the weekend was when Manchester United took the trip down to Brentford Community Stadium on the west side of London and got the ever-loving crap pounded out of them from minute one to minute 90 losing four nil to the bees in what can only be described as catastrophe but i personally think it is hilarious and no less
0: than what each team deserved uh, on the day i just need to say like give some context about my viewing experience for this game because united were three nil up i placed a phone call (laughs) to one nathan strauss and we both picked up the phone or we both connected onto the call and we just started laughing like it no words were exchanged. <laughs> we just immediately started laughing and, and then Mbuemo goes through with the counter attack and scores the fourth goal and we start laughing again. And this was, I think, you know, the, the last low for Manchester United was the five nil defeat at home against Liverpool last season. I think this is a new historic low, for them. You know, United have not been this bad since World War II. They have not lost to a single Brentford side since 1938. This is a historically bad period for this football club. And now, you know, they are the center of the football news world for all the wrong reasons. You know, there's talks about the Glazers finally being under pressure from the fans and from their structure to sell Jim Ratcliffe, the British billionaires, you know, circling the club. It seems uh, there's still discussions about their lack of any real recruitment strategy. Even after getting defeated 4-0, Eric Ten Hag canceled their Sunday day off to make them run the amount of distance that Brentford ran more than them in that game, which was something like 8.6 kilometers or something like that. Um, So, yeah, there is... There is a lot wrong with Manchester United's structure right now. And I think it was on full display to see Eric Ten Hag made two changes at the halftime, uh, bringing on Tyrell Malasia and chucking his 50 million pounds summer signing Lisandro Martinez onto the bench and bringing on Rafael Varane to stop the bleeding. And there's just so much, there was so much wrong with their first half performance, Caleb. From you know Christian Erickson seemingly playing defensive midfield at times to David De Gea's woeful distribution, which set up both uh Brentford's first two goals. I mean, this was just inherently comedic, and I think the the implosion that I think we were kind of implying on last week's podcast. Yeah, this was This was a low. This
2: this this was a there's no getting around it. And, you know, the players, as much as Ten hog bear responsibility here. Like, why would you play Christian Eriksen as, like, part of a midfield two? He's never played that position before. He's not a center midfielder. He's a center attacking midfielder. That second word in there makes a pretty big difference in, you know, what the player does and can be expected to do on the pitch. You know, watching this, I am, um, you know, I, I've i seen my fair share of, you know, gory blowouts in my day as a Barcelona fan, especially in recent years. However, those came at least in, like, the knockout stages of the Champions League. Manchester United are playing like Barcelona play against Bayern Munich in the Champions League in, like, every single Premier League match that they play. I don't even, this is like a headless chicken that's also missing a leg. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not sure I've actually ever seen a team so collectively underperform. Like, name another team that has so collectively underperformed. Because say what you will, and like, you know, Brentford deserve, you know, major plaudits for this performance, for, you know, doubling down on their advantage. I thought Ivan Toney showed great composure throughout. And Buemo, who I think is relatively underrated, um, or had an underrated sort of debut season in the Premier League, you know, scoring a goal here. But... Manchester United have the capacity to beat Brentford in their squad. McFred is good enough to beat Brentford. And so the collapse that we witnessed in this game,
0: it's it's almost inexplicable. The thing that I find, I was doing a bit of reading after this game, and the thing that I find so incredible or something interesting is that Justin Cochran, who is a coach under Ole last season, you know, left the club this season to go to Brentford and become their head of coaching. And he's been instrumental in getting players like Josh Da Silva back up and running this season, who I think was another standout for Brentford on the day. And it seems like there are clearly people who understand you know, footballing structure, who understand coaching, who understand know how to put things right on the pitch for united who end up leaving the club to go to better to go to better sporting situations and Cochran is is another example of that you know going to a team like brentford who have exquisite structure in that 4-3-3 know exactly what they're supposed to do know their roles know what the pressing triggers are going to be know how to unlock united know that you know they can trap christian eriksen in the 18 yard box I just think there's nothing like that at United right now. And you look at Ten Hag; they kept cutting back to Ten Hag, and that is a man who, who does not look like he has confidence in the resources, and the players, in the structure around him. You know, it got leaked this week that his, you know, his agents and his camp are really disappointed with you know the lack of structure and transfers um, and support that he has received so far in his United tenure. And yeah, it definitely looked like that was you know plastered on his face throughout the entirety of the game, Nathan. Yeah, and you I know feel this like... is someone that you know very well from his time at Ajax. So I'd be intrigued as to you know what your take is.
1: I think uh, there was an interesting, a really good article in the Athletic comparing Arsenal, Arsenal's sort of journey under Arteta to where United are, like as of like right now, and. When Arteta took over Arsenal, it was full of players purchased by two different previous regimes, the vast majority of whom could not play the way the coach wanted them to play. Now Ten Hag is obviously a more experienced coach than Arteta is, but he does have a very defined style of play that he carries over, not just from Ajax, but also from you know working loosely under Pep when he was the coach at Bayern, and uh, you know Ten Hag was working at Bayern too. Even when he was coaching at Utrecht, he had principles of this of, of his coaching that he modified based on the talent around him. But it is shocking to see just how far off I think the standards that he has, or at least the style that he wants to play, and the technical ability of United, particularly United's back six. Um, like we know that like I don't think Fred is unsalvageable. I think with the right defensive midfield partner. Fred can be a very serviceable player in a in a, in a 2 or a 3. But Eriksson playing as a 6 I think is sort of like a cry for help in the transfer market from Ten Hag. Maguire, I think it's time that we talk about United's purchases from the last 2 3 years really. So Maguire and juan bisaka for a combined total of 140 million euros. Both of those are massive busts. Like 80 million from Maguire. It seems like he's doesn't know how to pass the ball. Like I'm not even being hyperbolic here, but like he was struggling to complete sideways passes to Martinez. Luke Shaw, I think we know, has his ups and downs, and he's a fine left back. Dallo was bought to be a right back, a backup right back, and is now playing starting minutes. And I think we have to talk too about David de Gea, who has just been basically in free falling decline. I would say since the World Cup. In, in 2018, but Dude, he's possibly been even before man. that. Like he was an elite shot stopper when he was young, and now he's 31, and the shot stopping is average, but he was never good with distribution or with playing, you know, the ball with his feet, or as has been pointed out in particular the last few weeks, with uh his command of the area. Like he he his refusal to come out and try and break up crosses cost United a goal against Brighton. Uh, and he had just a, a terrible, terrible game uh, against against Brentford, and I do think he's totally passed it. And of course, you know, the next day, uh, Dean Henderson saved a penalty and looked really, really good for Nottingham Forest after being really, really good last year on loan, uh, or relatively speaking, on loan last year at Sheffield. So, I don't know, man. Huge questions. Uh, you know, the eighty million for Sancho is also up, up in the air right now. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of dead wood. And I do think United have a really, really good academy. But when it then gets leaked that they're thinking about selling James Garner, who was, you know, instrumental in Forrest getting back to the Pram last year, it makes me think that wow, they really do just need to like raise this whole thing down.
0: And like, why isn't James Garner getting minutes? You know, we're at that point where it's like, you need to start trying things. You need to start implementing these new players in, trying to bleed in players like Garnacho and Garner who aren't tainted by, you know, the several years of decline of this football club. You know, it's it's somewhat, you know, scarring what a lot of these Manchester United players have been through. And I think you're starting to see that with the likes of, you know, Luke Shaw really declining since the Euros, Harry Maguire looking like he's totally bereft of confidence. I think Jadon Sancho is starting to really feel the impacts of it as well. You know, even though, even though he's only been there for a year, he definitely does not look like the player that he was at Borussia Dortmund. And there is still, you know, we talk about this every week seemingly, there is still the Cristiano Ronaldo cloud that hangs over this club. And, you know, the more that time drags on, and you know, it was reported this week that United are open to letting him go if an offer comes in that's suitable or even they you know that were they were in consideration to terminate his contract fully and just let him walk and you know there was that video of him you know Steve McLaren tries to get him to go over and clap the fans afterwards but he just brushes him off walks off the pitch and totally avoids you know making any sort of gesture to Ten Hag and Ten Hag totally avoids eye contact with him you know he eats alone at Carrington according to The Athletic so that's just a huge to have like the the person who is you know ostensibly one of the two most popular athletes in the entire world be that openly petulant is a huge huge psychological and mental drain on the state of your football club and and results like this don't help
2: with you know recruiting or a replacement and they were already struggling with recruitment this summer i mean it seems like they had an agreement in place with barcelona for a transfer fee for frankie Dion. but frankie was like no friggin way and after this he's like no friggin way after this game, too, they were linked with Casemiro for about <laughs> for <like> five <laughs> seconds. Um, I forget which you know newspaper was report. Was it AS or you know one yeah of or them- Marca? It was one of them or Marca, one of the Spanish you know sports papers. And it was like Manchester United have you know contacted Casemiro about a potential transfer, and it's like two seconds later, Casemiro <laughs> has reiterated his desire <laughs> to stay at Real Madrid, and it's like well
0: that. That just makes sense. But I even then, it's like, what's what's the plan? Because Eric Ten Hag wanted to bring this pressing style of football. We saw that in preseason. You know, They were pressing all over the pitch. Casemiro doesn't press. Casemiro no, no. hasn't pressed like a day it is last. Casemiro, the, the Casemiro inspired... would
1: walk into this
0: team yeah. and be twice no, yeah. as
1: good as the next center
0: midfielder. Yeah. On this team. I think, I think I the tired just...
2: pressing midfielder from Madrid would be like a $300 million offer for Fede
0: Valverde. Um, it signals a lack of a <laughs> lack of strategy, is my point, right? And, and it then, signals that Eric Ten Hag and the yeah and the his people around him, and also you know whatever structure they have, Murtaugh has, you know, scout players that like they're totally just throwing darts at the wall at this point. And oh yeah, it lacks like complete imagination. Yeah, there's name no brand Guys,
2: yeah. I think today it was reported um, that. They were interested in Jao Felix, which doesn't really seem like they had a the hundred thirty
1: million dollar bid rejected from.
2: But like that doesn't even—he's not really that much of a goal scorer. Like, I, you would never play him as like a nine, you know, or a ten. Christian Pulisic, seemingly they want loan. I'm not sure he elevates them that much. Like, perhaps he could be in better form than Rashford and Sancho, but that's like a low bar. That's like, can he play soccer? Um so no this this club is this club is a mess and each week that this continues it becomes more and more dire. I mean they're they're like comfortably last place in the Prem right now, I think. Yeah, they've got um, the worst
1: goal difference in the league by two goals and they've played Brighton and Brentford. Yeah. Which which And they have Liverpool on Monday. <laughs> Like, yeah, I they have Liverpool, jokes, Leicester, and Arsenal in their next two Yeah, weeks.
2: they're going to lose the next three games, right? Um, I feel like we've joked in the past few years, we know when Arsenal had those spells down in the relegation, and it was all tongue-in-cheek, right? Like, we never truly... <laughs> Caleb, I, I, don't I, say I, it. I, but <laughs> right now, man, you are worse than ever. <laughs> 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 oh my God! <laughs> they're they're basically in the same class, you know. Uh, I'm actually I had this moment after this
0: game where I was like, "Holy crap!
2: Manchester United are getting relegated <laughs> from the
0: <laughs> on the 30th anniversary." Uh, yeah. The only th- I was saying to Nathan, the only thing that this game was missing was the like obligatory shots to the director's box and like Sir Alex Ferguson's face. You know, that was really the only thing that was missing from this game. But yeah, I agree. I mean, they're in total free fall right now. And they have about two weeks left in the transfer window to try and rectify something out of this situation.
1: And I don't, this might be harsh, but I don't necessarily think that United being in free fall is a bad thing for like the league or for soccer in general, the way I've seen some people talk about it. No, you play uh, stupid sort of, games. You win stupid. No, it's it, it sort of brought back a little bit of the like Super League conversation because functionally this happens every so often in soccer. Uh, think about like this is a little bit before our time, but like Parma in the early two thousands, or or Pompey, like Portsmouth, Leeds, or Leeds, Leeds, Leeds or is the Newcastle, example. or Nottingham Forest, like teams that are established, you know, top six, top seven. teams quality teams fall and they get replaced whether that's by a Newcastle or by a Leicester or something like that like it happens in soccer and the hierarchy has changed and frankly Arsenal uh, you know fell out of the top four for five years and as a result of, of years of failed policy so I'm not super interested in and neither of you guys would make this argument but I'm not super interested in a sort of a strong united is like good for the league because I just don't think that that's particularly true and frankly you know you're a publicly traded company like figure it out but uh and they did have talks by the way today allegedly about selling the club to one of the uh one of the like various United supporting uh Jim members ratcliffe. of the nobility yeah sir rat sir Jim ratcliffe uh who wants to buy uh but yeah I mean I think that's probably all we need to say on United but It's not like it gets any better for them because five days from now, they'll be playing Liverpool, who are uh, in desperate need of a good result, I think it's fair to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was a, we don't have to touch on this for too long since we've, we've gone a bit along on the Premier League here. But yeah, what a disaster at Anfield, you know, Liverpool looking to rebound after their pretty woeful performance away at Craven Cottage. And I think, you know, we've seen this script before, right, where Liverpool dominate possession. They have 75 or more percent of the ball, several shots on goal, uh, double the amount of passes as Crystal Palace, and they can't seem to find the net or convert any of their shots into chances. Through the opening two weeks of the season, Liverpool have accumulated the highest XG of any club in the league and have only uh only scored three goals. So it's three and three like really opportunistic goals. And in the case of Luis Diaz, you know, one with a pretty low XG. So it's not looking too good right now. Liverpool looking far too easy to score against. Harvey Elliott, I thought, was probably the best player on the day aside from Diaz. And Trent had, I think, his really first full extended run as a member of the midfield three towards the end of the game to try and get the back into it. But yeah, I mean, the real talking point is the sending off of Darwin Nunez, who got totally wound up. There's a brilliant, like, about minute and 20-second video that you can find on Twitter of Joachim Anderson totally just, like, getting under Nunez's skin from minute one of the game. And it results in the 60th minute, Darwin headbutting him after, you know, getting a bit too agitated. And then it's a rightful sending off. You know, it's a moment of madness. It's whatever other number of those cliches you want to call it. And Jurgen Klopp he saw red. He saw red. Yes. And Jurgen Klopp uh, is having a private conversation with him today to address, you know, the fact that, you know, this can't happen in the future. And he's definitely going to be a... Tar- well, first of all, is he's, he's going to miss three games and he's going to get like another mini preseason under his belt, which is good. But obviously we want him out there on the field since Diogo Jota is injured and Roberto Firmino is also now injured, although it's looking like he'll be fit for United. But yeah, Liverpool are in a tough tough place. A lot of players still missing through injury. And Darwin Nunes uh, has really put Liverpool in an even tougher spot with that just crazy, insane lack of discipline that he showed. On the flip side, I think Crystal Palace
2: continue to be, you know, they haven't had the greatest start in terms of results, I would say. Um, But a draw and a loss, and I think well-competed in both, against Arsenal and Liverpool to start your season could be worse. And I think they played their tactical plan to a T um, and Eze and, and Zaha in particular were, were a great combination and honestly Liverpool are lucky that on, I forget who the three ball was from. Was it from Ducure? Um, He just took a bit of a heavy touch um, and it got away from him and Alisson was able to sort of save another one-on-one. Um, But I think we can expect good things from Palace even as Liverpool have, you know, some work to do. And I think all these injuries and missing Nunez sets up for a a rather tasty and I think interesting, you know, Man U-Liverpool game this week because Liverpool will be like, great, we need this to kickstart our season. But I think Manchester United will also kind of feel the same
1: yeah and uh liverpool have a, a slightly easier next couple of games as well with with bournemouth uh newcastle and everton following the united game that's uh, we'll be fine
0: we're playing the team at the bottom of the table next week yeah it's all good <laughs> it's, it's just the opponent you want when you're in a bit of a in a bit of a rut
1: yeah and we don't have to talk about uh talk about it at all but kevin de bruyne scored a sensational goal Against Bournemouth, as uh, City won four 0 and continued to look uh, invincible at the top. But and also
0: not needing Erling Holland to perform very well to win. Erling no, Holland had, had nine two... touches. Yeah, he had two really key passes, if you want to call it. One of them was the kickoff, and one of them was the assist to Okai Gunduan. So clearly, they're still trying to integrate him fully into their system. But I think there's also an element of this man is here to you know be the killer, be that last little added spice to really get them over the line
1: yes and uh city have a a good run of games coming up as well with newcastle palace and forest so again i just don't see a game that they lose for a long long time but uh let's switch our focus to spain where la liga got underway finally uh and both barcelona and real madrid uh went down uh, at points well not really went down at points but struggled at points in their games barcelona were held to a nil nil draw by north macedonian legend himself stole a who made uh, five really good saves and real madrid picked up a 2-1 win uh, against Almeria after going down thanks to a Golasso from released manchester united youth player Large ramazani uh, their keeper by the way Fernando Martinez made 13 saves, which is the highest number this decade made by a La Liga keeper. But uh, two teams that maybe weren't in full form. But uh, Caleb, were you? What did you think about Barcelona this weekend?
2: Um, this was not the greatest start to the season. On the flip side. We haven't been especially good against Rayo in, in recent history. I think we've been held scoreless the last three games. Didn't and they so... do the double
0: over Barcelona last season? They did.
2: Yeah. Or it was or maybe it was a win and a draw. Um, but regardless, Barcelona have not scored against Rayo in like a year and a half or more now. Um I think we clearly still need to work on figuring out what the sort of ideal front three is. Um, Most of our sort of attacking play ended up feeding the wings. And unfortunately, you know, Rafinha especially was was fairly wasteful when put into good positions. I thought our midfield was a little stale uh, for the most part. And it wasn't totally a surprise to see Gavi and Pedri, you know, take the bench um, with Kessier and Frankie Diong, both, I think, putting in, you know, much improved shifts. Frankie, especially, really just his ability to sort of beat a man in midfield and just start, like, a mazy run forward is perhaps unbeaten by, you know, any midfielder other than, like, prime Modric um, right now. Um, Fati, I think, made a difference, but... We really should have expected more, and we have to be thankful to Ter Stegen uh, for saving you know, some some key one-on-ones. I, I'm really curious to see what our right-back situation is, especially it was interesting to see that Dest wasn't even included in the squad, though to my knowledge, he's fit. Araujo started at right-back. Sergio Berto um, came on later there. Christensen had a pretty poor uh, debut. I thought his distribution left much to be desired um and defensively he didn't offer a ton and then Busquets getting sent off in the 93rd minute wasn't um ideal I think I'm glad we didn't lose at home um but this was not the kind of 4-0 drubbing that I think people may have been hoping out for um although I think you have to recalibrate expectations when you're playing you know MLS teams and like Pumas um, in, in preseason which I think is not always the best six recipe for success in you know actual competitive play.
0: On the fullback thing and I definitely think Barcelona need to address some serious issues at fullback and Marcus Alonso we can get onto that. Marcus Alonso I don't think is the man to alleviate those concerns but when Sergio Roberto was getting ready to come on off the bench and he has like his new <laughs> like blonde hair I was like who is that like did Barcelona sign like someone new and I just like totally missed it or is this like someone coming up from La Masia and I was like no it's Sergio Roberto it's just a terrible bleach blonde dye job but yeah I think that speaks to um the lack of options right now for Barcelona at fullback I think Sergino Dest it seems like is perhaps angling for a move that's why he wasn't in the in the matchday squad but I think uh, a big concern for me from this game was yes the lack of total cohesion i definitely think barcelona had enough chances to win although it looked a bit disjointed out there at times i think they're still trying to figure out how to best integrate robert lewandowski into this system you know robert lewandowski is someone who you know really likes the ball into his feet you know he's not someone who has thrived a lot on, you know, get even though he has scored a lot of headers, he's not someone who you can just kind of like pump it up to. He's someone who it has to be like kind of the focal point. And I think that's kind of why you're seeing Bayern feel like somewhat liberated right now, tactically without him. They don't have to kind of like work around his strengths and weaknesses. And I think Barcelona are still trying to figure out, you know, the best way to, to integrate, you know, a true and trident center forward into their plans. And I think it's, it's you know, Xavi, who looked a bit like a Miami Vice villain, I have to say, with, you know, the white the white pants and the the black collared shirt and the the dyed hair not the dyed hair the the gelled up hair on the touchline I think he's he's a good enough coach he's a good enough mind to figure out how to do it you know he's played with the likes of Ibrahimovic with the likes of Thierry Henry uh, with Etto, and so I think you know they're going to be able to integrate him fully but I think there's still a lot to, a lot of work to do like Caleb said just in terms of getting this project totally reset and off off to the races.
1: Yeah, and then on the other side, uh Real Madrid are another team that they only played three preseason matches, uh, and they looked really rusty early on. They also played, you know, midweek last week uh against Eintracht Frankfurt in the UEFA Super Cup, which they won. Uh but they started Schwameni and Kamavinga in midfield, which is typically their like not backup midfield, but I think their uh rotation midfield, you know, they didn't start. Well, yeah, they, played Modric, the Super they didn't Cup. start Casemiro. Right. Uh, And they started, you know, everyone's favorite utility man, Nacho, at center back. Uh, Rudiger started and got bullied for the first part of the game by Ramazani and uh, former FIFA wonder kid, Umar Sadiq, who's now 25 years old. Uh, But, you know, they really settled down. Yeah, right? Umar
0: Sadiq (laughs) is 25?
1: He was was a football manager wonder kid in 2014 and 2015 uh, when he was playing for Roma. Which is crazy. Oh it seemed God. like it seemed like it wasn't that long ago, and then of course he famously, you know, could get games under Steven Gerrard. But uh, once Madrid brought on Modric at halftime, uh, you know they brought in Eden Hazard to play as a false nine. At the sixty-minute mark, uh, they really calmed things down. David Alba came on as a substitute for Furlan Mendy, who played really well, uh, and then immediately scored a free kick, a banger from just outside the box with his first touch. Uh, it was. Honestly, a pretty deserved win for Madrid in the end. And uh, yeah, they Vinicius looked so, so good. Uh, four dribbles completed, could have scored twice. It seems like Madrid are just picking up where they left off. Uh, and uh, I thought Camavinga wasn't great, Schrameni wasn't great, but they still are clearly you know betting in as well.
0: Yeah, Carlo Ancelotti only needed to raise one eyebrow in order to get the job done this time didn't even need to raise two in order to kick Real Madrid into gear in the second half it's true I mean I think Almeria you know made
2: the you know novice rookie mistake of scoring too early when they're trying to you know do do a giant killing Um, but I think this is this is like classic Madrid where they don't play especially well necessarily even though lots of saves right um but they they get the job done. And I think Alaba is he's just that good. Like he he really is one of the best players in the world. Like his ability, he he's not warm. He comes onto the field, scores a free kick. This is the same guy who scored the winner just a few days prior against Frankfurt um, in in the Super Cup. So Madrid looking strong. Other teams looking strong though in the league as well. I think Atleti, after a very, I think, poor uh you know, title defense last year looked quite good, I would have to say, against um a, a somewhat, you know, lacking in creativity Hitafe team. They won three nil. Murata on his, you know, I feel like fourth return or fifth return <laughs> to the city of Madrid for one team or another. Sixth. <laughs> yeah. Uh scored a brace even greetsman got on the board and Jao felix in i feel like at this point what has to be you know the make or break season he's had a few <laughs> years now but he's still what only 22 um maybe 23
1: 23 i think he's 23
2: he's he's still he's still young he still gets to you know go under the young player category but there are worse ways to start a season 22 than, 22, 22 november, with november birthday yeah then with three assists um and i think you know, seeing him in full flow as second striker, um, would would be nice. Betty got off to a nice start as well, but good to see you know La Liga back in action. But as Nathan mentioned last week, there were other leagues that were back in action as well. Syria, um, I don't know if you have any results you guys want to to call out here. I I think probably
1: talk about talk about Inter first because, you know, they had probably the most entertaining. It wasn't it wasn't the best weekend of fixtures in Serie A Uh, and Serie A is weird because it starts late. But every team has already played or every non Champions League team, I think, has already played a domestic game in their Super Cup. Kind of like the Bundesliga, only weirder. Uh, But Inter uh, got things started off with a bang coming back. Uh, to to get three points against newly promoted Lecce, with Lukaku scoring in the second minute in his uh, return to to the San Siro, or actually it was it was in Lecce, but in his return to to Inter, and then Denzel Dumfries scoring with a kind of hail mary with basically the last touch of the game, and uh, Inter back to their winning ways, I guess, and you know nothing. We didn't think a whole lot would change with this Inter team but uh you know we got to see Robin Gosens continue uh you know his his play with Inter and uh yeah I mean Lukaku and Martinez is such a good strike partnership like it's just absolutely elite and having
2: Jacco yep. off the bench is just sick like I, I don't know Inter are my early season favorites right now
0: for sure and I think Juventus looked quite strong as well they beat a Sassuolo team that I think has really lost a lot of talent in recent years and a fun anecdote about Sassuolo and I think also this extends to Torino as well in somewhat of a uh, off-season saga in Serie A is players and management fighting in random places or outside in parking lots because Sassuolo lost the derby to Modena 3-2 before this game and a fan chased Club captain Domenico Berardi into the streets where they had a full-on fist fight <laughs> in the streets of in the streets of Modena, Italy. Um, and Berardi released a statement saying that, like, hey, like, usually, you know, obviously, I'm not going to try and fight with the fans, but like, don't come after my family and so and so. And then the Torino uh, coach and chief executive got into a filmed altercation in the in the club parking lot over the lack of transfers. (laughs) And so I think it's feeling, not only is it feeling violent in the Premier League, it is feeling very violent and raw at the beginning of the Serie A campaign. And uh, Juventus are looking quite good. Di Maria scoring on his debut for the club and two goals from Dusan Vlaovic as well, who I think needed a good start to his campaign after somewhat falling off the pace towards the end of last season. And I think, you know, Napoli and, and AC Milan are the other two big winners of this weekend with Roma getting the win, but looking a little shaky, uh, looking like Paolo Dybala and co and Zaniolo are not quite fully implemented into the side as of yet. Nick, I think there's a lot of, there there were
2: some, you know, I think the big teams won, you know, it may have been a little sloppy, a little dirty, um, a little rough around the edges, but the big teams won. Juventus will it looks like also be getting Memphis Depay um to kind of fill the uh Debala void and once again Serie A is going to be the fun league.
1: Yeah. This year. There's four um, teams there's four teams that could win the title.
2: Yeah, are you including Roma in that? I'm that not including Roma, okay. in that. So Who's the
1: like, including Roma in yeah, that. I am including Roma. Yeah, I have I have Napoli, Juve and the two Milan sides. You think Juve why wouldn't I think Juve, bro? Di Maria is looking like a world class player after one game. I
0: don't know, Brever man. The squad's good. Kind of, the squad's not <laughs> The squad's not that deep, dude. Dude, it's Juve. Never bet against Juve. That's a good point. Man. It's Juve, and it's uh, they've and got it's...
1: Nicolo Fagioli on the bench. They do. They they've do. got Cosimo Marco da Grassa ready to you know fill some big shoes. Bro, they, they, got, got, they got Kostic who just got Mar- puts got in Mourinho a million out crosses here. per game.
0: Roma have Mourinho looking revived out here. Have you seen this man? Yeah, he looks he's like got, he went like, to Turkey and got a, his hair yeah. isn't yeah, gray right. anymore. he has his tattoo now. He's got yeah. the tattoo. He's a cool know. dad. He's right? looking. He's looking ripe. No, no,
2: Italy is where Mourinho belongs is, yeah. spiritually belongs, and it's so much better for his character. Like I, I enjoy him. No, he's like, as, as you're Italian. mentioning. Yeah, no, right. <laughs> like, I'm waiting for the the Mourinho fist fight in the street story um, <laughs> from this year but syria i think again should entertain and they've actually brought i think a lot of quality into the league this summer um do we have time for some quick quick bundesliga and Ligue 1 hits i know we're, we're we're kind of at time i think we should do but... the
0: i think we should do the mbappe okay <laughs> and, then, and then call it a day okay <laughs> so we're we're skip we're skipping the bundesliga because as we discussed last week Biden over already over. won the league so <laughs> congratulations to that. <laughs> even the dormant have won twice haven't they
2: Dortmund have won tw- and uh with a goal from you know recently signed oh wait no that was that was last week wasn't it oh no he started today i think yeah. yeah um well with a goal by uh jamie how do you say his last name you Gittens, Gittins, um, another young Englishman making his way to Dortmund um, and scoring the eighteen-year-old. So whatever, yes, okay. There, there are some teams that have currently on pace with Bayern Munich, but it doesn't matter because at this point they're all exhibition games. Um, <laughs> on the to- great bit, on to <laughs> you highly on this on, on to league. Oh, uh, where PSG one five two.
0: But at
2: what cost,
0: Nick? At what cost? Nathan, I need you to drop the the like French Riviera, Paris like accordion music <laughs> and hear while we talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I think some background music is required for this beef. Oh, I'm on Which, it. I'm this on this it. is the beef episode, L- let's just say. This is epic <laughs> rap battles of Ligou 2022, 2023. <laughs> epic rap battles of beef, of Ligou beef. And we're talking about superstar sized beef in the in the in the form of uh neymar and killian mbappe who are really it's things are looking tense over there at psg right now two games into the season um when uh, mbappe completely bailed on a move um in their in their most recent match Vitinha chose to pass the ball to messi instead of him neymar or mbappe completely started running or completely stopped running um, when he could have scored a tap in at the back post if he had continued the move, but instead like threw his hands up in disgust, pulling a full Cristiano Ronaldo that he wasn't getting the ball. Um, is idle? Yeah, it is idle. It came out in the uh, the press this week from pretty reliable sources that uh, Mbappe is unhappy that Neymar hasn't left yet, and he is um, way more comfortable you know with Messi as his mentor and as his you know co-strike partner than he is with Neymar. Um, it seems like that relationship is really tenuous right now. And obviously, Neymar, it seems like, as as everyone in the PSG setup should be, is quite nervous about the fact that Mbappe, seemingly in his new contract, has a bit more pull or, um, you know, a bit more player GM-style role than I think anyone should really be comfortable with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like he just needs to grow up a little bit. And also, it's hard, too, because the market for Neymar, I think, just doesn't exist. Although I do think there's a situation where he could go to Chelsea uh, or uh, United. But I don't really see how... I mean, the investment that PSG placed in Neymar with his you know, world record transfer fee of, what, 222 million a couple of years ago, means that right now they'd probably need, what, like 160 million to sell him at least. And the thing with Neymar is that a lot of the time in the last like I think the last 12 months in particular it just doesn't seem like he has much joy in his game which is like a weird thing to say but I was watching a compilation of his highlights from when he was at Santos and like he just was so much better than everyone else because of how much fun he had so I don't know I just don't really see how this ends well for PSG or for Mbappe or for Neymar for that matter. But it is kind of heartening to know that, like, even in the season where we all thought that, like, this really was PSG's or is PSG's strongest squad they've had, uh, you know, they are still not immune from uh, the Frenchness within them.
2: Well, and notably, this was the first game in Ligue 1 where, and in the, the cup win that they had that Mbappe was playing because the previous few games this season he was out and it was just Messi and Neymar who were you know doing great together. Um, I, I think the main source of tension within this game though was the fact that 23 minutes in PSG won a penalty Mbappe then missed the penalty they won another penalty in the sort of 41st minute and Mbappé wanted to take it again, but then Neymar took it and scored. Um, And then there was some, you know, chatter afterwards about Mbappé being upset that he wasn't allowed to take basically about who the penalty taker is going to be on the team this year. And then Neymar liked some tweets that were sort of mocking.
0: Oh dude, that's always the liking of the tweets. The liking of the tweets. And the the thing is,
2: it's, it's, that, that's that's how professionals speak. Yes. Like, pro yes. sports players, they speak through tweet likes. Like, they speak through fans, like, giving digs at Mbappe and liking that. Um, so, and the thing is, there are several sort of solid but not spectacular... Penalty takers on this team, like Neymar has, is in like the mid 80s per his career. Messi is, you know, in the high 70s. He's definitely not first choice. Mbappe's taken fewer. I think is in the higher 80s. I think technically though, Sergio Ramos might have the best the penalty best. conversion yeah. rate of 80. Um,
0: he's the best. Of yeah, and if but there's the anyone optics. to like
2: quell, if there's anyone to <laughs> quell, like I would just like to see Mbappe like try to stand up to Sergio Ramos. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I think. For the for the you know
0: wellness of the squad, it might be best that Ramos take right. the penalties. And I think, in like like Nathan was saying, you know, PSG. It looked like we're really starting to figure things out, both in the front office with appointing Luis Campos, who we've seen do a lot of great work at Monaco um, and other clubs, and Christophe Galtier, who comes with a, a lot more of a pragmatic approach that I think the players can really buy into. But just 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 right as that was all you know clicking together the immaturity i think of killian mbappe rears its ugly head and i think psg right now i think could be ruining the fact that they've given him so much power in that that latest contract deal but i'd be interested to see you know how this drama all all ends up and there's no neymar doc. there's i mean maybe there's going to be a second season of that horrific neymar netflix documentary or amazon documentary whatever it was you know tell the full story but you know, time will tell
1: well we will keep an eye on this but plenty of stuff plenty of games coming up uh this week and next and we'll of course have uh all the action for you as well as you know some deadline stuff coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks as well but until next time uh, i've been nathan strauss
0: kale bread and
1: we will see you all next time